Welcome to Crucial Conversations, a series of conversations with various guests to engage in difficult subjects. This series is coming to you from Central Christian Church in downtown Indianapolis. This month's series is on anti-racism. Our focus is not on interpersonal violence of racism, but systemic racism that is rooted in our institutions, including the church. Please join us each week on Thursdays when we release new episodes. Welcome back to uh, another uh, compilation of Crucial Conversations. I am Pastor Luis, and I'm glad uh, to be back with you all this uh, afternoon. And today, uh, we have both Michael Russell and Lori Adams with us. Um, they are both uh, work for Crossroads Anti-Racism Organization and Training. Uh, we are grateful that they are spending this time with us this afternoon. And so welcome to, uh, welcome to the space. Thanks, Louise. Thank you. Crossroads Anti-Racism Organization and Training. Uh, can you just tell us a little a bit about uh, what, what that is and, and uh, what the responsibilities are? Yeah, well, my path in Crossroads is really interesting, kind of mirrors Crossroads. I am, um, I am an ordained uh, clergy person with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the ELCA, and uh, I met Crossroads through that relationship, uh, first as a college student and then as a seminarian. Went to a workshop, which is what we do. We, put up, we, we uh, present a lot of workshops as a tool of our organizing. Crossroads is an, and, uh, an agency, a, um, a collaboration of people who are very concerned about racism and anti-racism and white supremacy and the extremely destructive effects that it has had on the United States and all of our population, in fact, and all of our creation. And so I met this organization through my own concerns in those lanes. Uh, as a call person, I feel that uh, Jesus and justice go hand in hand and uh, in, in, in a workshop. And then I met some of the primary organizers with the organization and, uh, and I just hung on in there and stayed. And, uh, and now it has grown into Crossroads is my specialized call through the Metropolitan Chicago Center of the ELCA. Uh, so I'm doing this as a, as, as a word and sacrament pastor. Um, and, um, and it really is the work of focusing on dismantling white supremacy at, with our vision, our goal of basically being participants in the salvation of creation. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we do and how we do it. And we've been doing it now since 1986. And you can imagine how much we've been doing over the last few years, uh, just because of all the things that have, that have kind of uh, snowballed and mushroomed COVID-19 and the uprisings and the insurrection. It seems like there's one thing after another thing after another. But what it also seems like is that we have come to a place as a nation and a people that are simply saying to one another enough, we have to do something. And Crossroads has been trying to do something uh, since 1986. So that's, that's who we are. I met Crossroads when in the 19, mid 1990s, I guess, I was working in the office of the general minister and president for the Christian church, Disciples of Christ. Uh, Dick Ham was general minister and president at the time. And we decided as a denomination that we wanted to engage in anti-racism work. There was a, a team put together to do what was called uh, enter into a discernment process on 
anti-racism and the church. And the team decided very quickly that we needed to dismantle racism from the inside out, that it wasn't a great idea for the Christian church disciples of Christ to engage this work uh, as how can we solve the problem for a society when we had not addressed the work internally. There were a lot of people who had done a lot of good work moving into uh, the mid nineties on addressing racism in its various structural components and in its various levels within the church. But in the mid 1990s, we began this intentional work. And at the time Crossroads was the only organization that we could find that was doing work with denominations from a theological standpoint or from a theological foundation. So we entered into this partnership with Crossroads and every organization that I have worked for since uh, working with the general minister and president's office, including uh, Disciples Church Extension Fund and uh, the National Benevolent Association and all kinds of other uh, church-related or not-for-profit organizations uh, have been partnering with Crossroads in one way or another to dismantle racism from the inside out. I came to work with Crossroads then about six years ago. I was called as a national organizer and facilitator and have been doing this work with not-for-profit organizations, with religiously affiliated organizations, and with uh, increasingly corporate America. Uh, but, but most of our work is with educational institutions and not-for-profits. My understanding of Crossroads is it works with a wide range of uh, groups and organizations, uh, not-for-profits and churches, and both of you uh, come from faith backgrounds. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about what it is um, as individuals who have uh, a calling uh, in life in their ministry to be working for an organization such as Crossroads and what it's like uh, to be that voice in spaces where um, you would not be expecting to have these conversations. Well, I, as I was saying earlier, Louise, I, I think I did expect to have these conversations. I don't think I would have been satisfied or, uh, or might not have even gone long. You, you know what it's like to be in the pipeline for ordination. You know the challenges. You know all that goes along with it. I, I might not have been capable of staying in there if I did not think that the essential work of the church was about justice. What I found was that the church as an institution itself need that work on itself. Uh, that, uh, that, that my church, uh, as I, and we have worked with so many denominations. Uh, um, and in fact, all three of the incredible women of color that lead Crossroads today are also women of faith. Uh, they have all been uh, very prominently represented in there uh, from the, UUA, to the Presbyterian Church, uh, to United Church of Christ, <laughs> Lutherans. I mean, they've, they've all been there. They all have that faith formation that Lori had talked about earlier. But for me, it was necessary. And the thing that became more necessary, the more I got closer and closer to uh, an, an, an official and ordained relationship with the church, the more I found out the church needed the work in itself. And, and Lori's right about that, that Crossroads dedicated itself as organizing from the inside out that what we recognize was that if we are able to leverage change in institutions, we will, will actually leverage change in societal systems all the faster. But I think what you're alluding to is also correct. It's not easy. 
Uh, one, you have to be a critical lover of your institution, which means you have to look really closely and you have to see the all of the deficiencies and the defects and the things that are actually kind of written into your system that uh, that that support white supremacy, that support injustices of all types, that support oppressions of all kinds of ways. And you have to be able to then, and here's where the Faith Foundation comes in, you have to be able to speak a prophetic word even when it is in your institution and even when it is at a, at a moment when they don't wanna hear it. Uh, that I don't think any prophetic word is at a moment when the people are ready to hear it, right? But, but you have to be able to do that and you have to be able to go beyond the speaking or preaching the prophetic word. The teaching won't change it. So what you do is as you are teaching, you're also organizing to find what I call agents of change and transformation within the institution. We're gonna line up with you in order to make those changes. And so that's what we do uh, at, at all kinds of levels. When you say, Laurie, from local churches all the way up, right? Yeah, absolutely, Michael. I think um, one of the things that we notice or that we talk about is the way that our understanding of systemic racism is rooted in history. And certainly, it is uh, rooted in not only the history of the United States, but the history of the United States as a Christian nation. Now, I'm completely aware of the reality that we are established as a nation in a way that separated church and state. But what I also know is that uh, we were created as a nation by and for white people of faith. Uh, or at least who inherited a, a, an ancestry of faith, both uh, early on the, the one church, the Catholic church, and then increasingly as we developed into a nation, the, the Protestant church. And so when we, when we talk about structural or systemic racism being embedded in the history of who we are, we have to think about how the Christianity that uh, formed a colonialism, that formed European colonialism, actually gave all kinds of permissions through the Pope, through the church, through the, through the, uh, the kind of triumvirate relationship between the church and the crowns, the monarchs of, these, of those nation states, those European nation states, and then through the commerce that was developing at the time in this age of quote unquote discovery, the permissions to, as one of the, uh, one of the early papal bulletins suggests, uh, give free and ample faculty to invade and search out and capture and subdue all pagans and enemies of Christ. And to reduce any of the people, the indigenous people, in what we now call the Americas, the indigenous people in all of what is now called uh, the continent of Africa to, to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery and to convert their resources for the uses of these European colonizers. So that kind of European colonialism that, that forms who we are as a nation is a really important piece of Christian his history that, uh, that continues to uphold this notion that, that some people are better than, some people are more 
fully human and other people are less than. And if that's the kind of founding uh, principle, the values or the worldview that holds together who we are, we got to understand that we carry that DNA as a church. Uh, and, and certainly Michael can talk about uh, the, the history of uh, enslavement that the, the uh, Protestant church supports and indeed deeds relies on as it, uh, as it comes to fruition as a partner in, as a, as a um, participant in this nation building that we're talking about. And, and, and I think while we could talk about that and, and the histories are there to be revealed to anybody who will look, what I think is, is just important is the recognition of the impact that that has for people of color in their participation in the church and for other marginalized identities along the, the, the historical timeline. Um, that, that we recognize that women are marginalized in that mix, in that matrix early on. And so we also recognize that the church and other systems were built as a, as a white supremacist heteropatriarchy, that that is all real, that is true. That up until recent years, most of these churches were led by white men. But the other thing is that most of these churches were in one way or another, while they are holding out their hand and, and saying and, and reaching for people of color to become part of those congregations, they're at the same time holding up another hand that is saying, but only to a certain extent, only to the extent where what you can do is you can assimilate and you can be the kind of people of color that we need you to be which basically reduces them as it does all the way back to slavery, Laura, you're right about that, to a commodity that is usable and functioning in this church. And, and, and that means that, back to what you, your original question, Louise, I come into this church knowing that my personhood already is marginalized because of the history that we're built on. And now I'm in a position where what I'm seeking to do is to alter the imbalance, is to dismantle those systems and structures that are creating a marginalization for my personhood and also for personhoods of all kinds of people who are around me who are like me. Uh, I'm certain that you struggled yourself, Louise, in getting through all the hoops of church and then getting to the place where you're, you're ordained. And I suspect that there's still some struggle there as Lori did. I'm, I'm certain that those struggles are, are there and that shapes how we be, that certainly shapes how I be in relationship to the church and this particular work. That the work of the church is the work of ending oppression. That the work of the church is the work of moving us towards um, the beloved community that King preached about and that Howard Thurman originally wrote about. But that in order to build that beloved community, what we have to do is we have to unroot, to, uh, to dismantle, uh, to, to bring some of the some of the, the columns some of the ways of being absolutely down in order to rebuild those ways of being that would speak for equity that would speak for real justice that would allow people to be fully appreciated in the fullness that God created them to be and that's that's our struggle and we struggle against um, as the word would say powers and principalities but as we might think of them as political ways of being and uh, structural inequity and uh, and systemic and structural racism and white supremacy those would be those 
powers and principalities that we're struggling against. So, so yeah, I, I think that's the work that we do. And it is interesting that you also asked about not-for-profits because I think it leaks in there. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm really curious as to, uh, to hear both of you what you think about, you know, um, from your experience in, in dealing with both uh, the faith-based institutions and the non-faith-based institutions. What, what do you see the, you know, the work? Is it, is, it, is it different when you're working with non-for-profits in comparison to uh, the church? Meaning, you know, internally, it's not going to be different. Right? When you're called to do something, regardless if it's here or there, you are going to step into that place and be yourself and you're going to speak. But is there, is there a difference between the work that you do with the not-for-profit and that you do with the church? So, yeah, that's a great question, Luis. It's, it is different in terms of uh, what we can talk about in terms of the moral imperative of the church, the, the ethical imperative that is um, based in who we understand ourselves to be in relationship to the holy, the, our God, but also as we understand ourselves in relationship to what it means to be a disciple, small d, uh, of Christ, right? What it means to be the hands and feet and voice and heart of, of Jesus Christ of, of Nazareth, the Jesus of Nazareth as a, as a, as a, um, as a prophet in the world and as one who called for social change and who called for social justice. I think, I think that is something that the white progressive church has taken up uh, in some pretty important ways and the white evangelical church as well. I mean, we, we know from our work with uh, William Barber, um, who is a part of our denomination, but calls himself an evangelical that that we're talking about the entire spectrum of, of voices who are committed to a different social order than the one that is currently in place and that has arisen out of that historical reality that we were talking about earlier. Um, and having said that, <laughs> there is this thing about both the, the white church white majority church and not-for-profits that, that is shared. Um, we have, in the course of our 200 and something years of existence, uh, developed an economy and a way of distributing resources that has not been equitable. And it has not been equitable along racial lines um, for all kinds of reasons but it has disproportionately favored white society, disproportionately privileged. We know that there's an incredible wealth gap between white and all people of color, right? The accumulation of wealth over time has accumulated in what we might call a, a very large white uh, pool. And that that has meant that the church's role and the role for not-for-profit organizations has been to fill in the gaps of that inequity. And often we have done so both as church and not-for-profit in ways that are pejorative or paternalistic, 
in ways that band-aid the symptoms rather than getting at the, the historic inequities that are caused through systemic roots. And so we find ourselves in a time where uh, churches and not-for-profits of all kinds, including Crossroads as a not-for-profit organization, are, are filling in the gaps of um, you know, food distribution inequity or um, housing or all kinds of ways and means of maintaining what we used to call an apartheid state. That is, you know, the separation of white and all other people of color groups, right? And uh, this recognition that it is not because we are benevolent, we, we are good people, we are, uh, the church as an institution tends to protect its benevolence and its innocence in all kinds of ways. But where we believe, I think Michael and I believe, and Michael, I'll let you speak for yourself. So let me just say what I believe and what motivates me to stay in the work with churches is the understanding that it is out of our ethical call, out of our theological rootedness that we have to be more than benevolent, right? We got We have to upend the social order that says some people are more deserving, namely white society is more deserving and all others, whether stamped because of quote unquote foreignness or stamped because of the color of skin or stamped because of an affiliation with a particular religion, that all others who are stamped, uh, to, use, uh, to use a phrase uh, from, I think it's Ibram Kendi, um, all others who are stamped are somehow uh, less than, right? It's that superior, inferior upending of society, to do away with that, to dismantle that, that worldview that requires the kind of moral imperative that allows us to work with churches differently than with not-for-profit organizations. And I would say to add to that, Luis, <clears throat> that one of the essential differences is matching up with language and symbols and uh, ways of being of the different systems. Um, so for example, within the church, we want to use more theological grounding and, uh, and, and language that people recognize um, and, and, and ways of talking about this that people recognize. So we, we would go back into the history and weave into our conversation, the stories of, of Catholic or of papal support of European colonialism and how that then transitioned into the United States into the, the Protestant democracy experiment that we began here and how that even leaked into our legislation. So the first bit of, of, of immigration legislation, the Naturalization Act of 1790 actually has in it people of good moral character that comes directly from that connection to the church. And it also happens to say white persons, um, free white persons of good moral character. So all those piece about our, our ideological foundations are there. And we have to be able to speak into that frame in order to convince people that this is in their self-interest. So when you shift to 
not-for-profit organizations, when you shift into justice organizations, we are talking about, and those are organizations, I'm saying that, that operate in resistance to the way, to what Lori, I believe, called um, an apartheid state. Uh, um, when they operate in resistance to, we also have to get them to take a look at their own history and their own story that says, and what part is connected to that state? What part of your being could it be your, your, your actual tax identification, the way that you're incorporated, what part of you connected that state that you have to take a close look at so that you know what you have to, 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 to undo in your own existence. But we have to speak that language when we're digging with them. And she's right, we're, we're doing more corporate work right now. We have to actually figure out, so what part of this can you begin to see the cost benefit of this work? Because there is. There are huge markets of people that you are, because you are serving in malformed ways are not able to bring their full participation and their full their, their full ability to take advantage of, of the products and the services that you even offer. You restrict them, you restrict the way, and therefore you, you restrict yourself. But we have to adopt the language. We have to adopt to the ideologies. We have to adopt to the ways that they think and be. And I think that's the sole difference. When we're talking to not-for-profits, we are indeed, as Lori mentioned, we're hearkening back to, so how are you founded and funded? Is it basically so that you can do work that makes you feel better about some space of guilt within you? Or is it also so you can do work that keeps you in control, a particular way that the society operates? In both of those scenarios, what you have also you know, written in is forms of oppression. So that what you do is you maintain control and you maintain control at the expense of the others that you've commodified and kept under control. All of that we have to adapt to and have a conversation that gets again back to, so what is your root call and ideology of service? And what has malformed that in your relationship with white supremacy? And I think that's one thing that we've become clear and clear about over the years, that all of this is negotiating and navigating a relationship with white supremacy that we must figure out how we can decouple and deconstruct until the point where white supremacy simply no longer exists. It's caustic to all of us. I, I, would, I would offer that as, as one of the, for me, one of the essential differences in the way that we approach them. But at the core, we're approaching the same disease with some very similar symptomology. Yeah. Well, you know, as I listen to both of you, I mean, uh, we can definitely speak for hours uh, on this particular subject. I, I do have uh, um, kind of a final question uh, that I wanted to to pose to you, and this is based on the conversations that I had with other people that have led me to this, and something that I've been asking myself more recently. In one of the conversations we had um, with uh, Black Lives Matter, um, one of their uh, leaders here, Jessica Louise, uh, Indie Black Lives Matter 10, uh, her and I have known each other for some time, and said something to me that really stuck out to me. And I wanted to ask you to that question uh, along the same lines. She didn't pose it to me as a question, but uh, I'm gonna pose it to you. One of the things she mentioned is, um, like yourself, Lori, she had worked uh, with disciples and denomination and um, you know, she was in a sense um, tired of kind of the same kind of attitudes of, of things. And basically she said, I no longer want to spend my energy um, creating allies 
in mm -hmm. trying to dismantle racism. I want to spend my energy in uplifting my community. And for her, she was very specific in lifting up the Black community. And it posed to me the question that sometimes in, in doing the work of anti-racism, whether it be in the church or in the not-for-profit, in many ways, it sounds as if we are trying to create allies and helping us dismantle this thing that's gonna take forever, right? Or it feels like forever. When does one say, okay, I've done my part in, in the uh, creating of allies and one does, where does one say, it's time for me to, to start lifting up my community? Um, and so I guess the, the question I have is, has, as people who are deeply rooted in a moral and ethical foundation to dismantle systematic racism. Uh, when, what are the, like for me, I, I imagine, and again, I, I have not been working at it as long as both of you, but I've come to the point where I ask myself that question, where should my energy be moving towards? So I didn't know if, if either one of you have ever had that feeling as, where should my energy be used for? Where is the best source of my energy uh, moving forward in, in this conversation and in this work? Yeah, I had that feeling yesterday. <laughs> I mean, we're in land. You know, we're analyzing the things that, um, that separate us from God, where we're taking a look at the ways of being that we can get out of our way so that we could draw closer to God's call on our lives and all. And part of it is that question. Um, and, I, and I do wrestle with that. I particularly wrestle with it as um, I'm also the president of an organization called Soul Southsiders Organizing for Unity and Liberation in the Chicagoland area, the Metro Chicago area. And we are an action activist oriented organization. Uh, we protest mass incarceration. We uh, we work toward mass liberation. We uh, work towards the, um, the, the the welcoming of people who are decarcerated into our communities. And we advocate for those who are incarcerated. Uh, just recently with COVID, just trying to get adequate health care in Cook County, things like that, ending the cash bill. So, I mean, that's that's working within my community to, 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 to work towards liberation um, or within people of color community in general, I think of myself as uh, African -American, a, an African-American person of color. So I'm connected to that as a primary community. I'm also connected to people of color as my extended community of relationships. And I'm always, I'm a lot asking that question, where should I stand? And I finally come to some kind of a balance in being able to say in both places that I am a, because our people are in these institutions and they are there as all of us are they, these institutions are allowing them to support families and lives and neighborhoods and communities and our overall society but they are doing so draining them so how do i stand with them in those institutions by moving those institutions just to, to, to shift and to change part of that's the work of crossroads but also how do i stand with them outside of those institutions and that is the work of soul but even the work of soul we bring some of that analytical frame, being able to say to one another, and how has our navigation of white supremacy set us up to support the, the institutionalization of it? And where do we catch ourselves in that moment? We can we catch one another in these relationships of accountability so that we can free one another. So I can say to Black Lives Matter, you all keep doing that work. 
It is vital, it is important. Please keep doing that work. And watch what I'm doing over here with the banks or the, or the police department or the military that's attempting to destabilize their understanding that you are an enemy as opposed to being an advocate of the real state. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the real polis, the, the, the politics that Plato and Aristotle were talking about, not the, the partisan politics, but the real politics that refer to how we conduct our lives as a community of people, that, that all of this is needed. And I, I would say in this moment, but this is a long moment. So all that is needed that we're working inside and outside, but that, that, that need to analyze ourselves at a deeper level is always going to be present. So I, th I think that's how I, that's how I reconcile it. And I hope that's how Crossroads reconciles it too. <laughs> yeah. Michael, that, it's so interesting to think about your question, Luis, from the, from the different vantage points. You know, what does it mean to be a white ally? And what does it mean to be um, an African-American man in this work? Um, that, th those are such two completely different questions, right? Uh, and, and it's the same question because for me, there is this relationship to Michael and to communities of color and to you, Luis, and to communities of color that go that says, um, you know, inclusion is the very least of it. Valuing the assets and the wisdom and the ways of being Christian that the two of you bring that are not a part of my upbringing, that are not a part of my socialization. Um, that that kind of valuing means I can be a part of a, of a richer church, of a, of a way of being in community that is far greater than what it would be if Central Christian Church was only a, a, a white community. At the same time, Central Christian Church has been a white community for what, uh, we're 12 years short of 200 years, right? Um, this congregation was founded in 1833 on land that, uh, where, where Native people were removed, right? That where Native people hunted and grew food and made life and spoke language and did culture and sang and danced and no longer did that so that the city of Indianapolis and Central Christian Church could, could be itself and could grow for 200 years, right? And Central Christian Church has always been a, a segregated congregation to some extent, not because we were in a slave state, we weren't, but the rules of segregation applied and applied and applied and still apply. So that today, um, while I realize that there has been a, an interim pastor of color of this congregation before, you, Luis, are the first full-time pastor of color in the almost 200 years of history. And and we can count the people of color. Well, we can count them on three sets of hands now. I mean, I, 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 maybe I'm wrong about that, but, but out of 300 people, maybe uh, 10 to 15 
percent are identify as people of color. Um, and so like, what does it mean to take that DNA and to come to terms with that, uh, that reality that we were created as a congregation for and white for and by white people and that we were that we are still constructed in a way that advantages white folks and our ways of being over people of color and more importantly what would it look like if we could resist and imagine a congregation that was accountable to the leadership of people of color to people like you, Luis, to people like our general minister and president, uh, Terry Hoard Owens, and to, and to uh, Sandra Gorday and the legacy of Ethel Mace and all of those people who have been a part of our congregation and who are a part of our congregation, but who are still diminished, right? Who, who when we see not because we're not good people, but when we view, we view as other or we view as deficit. What would it mean to learn from, to be, to, to celebrate not only difference, but like better than-ness that you bring, Luis, because of your own experiences? And what would we be as a community that values the assets of all of our society and not just the asset of 200 years of legacy of it's always been this way. I, I think the term ally has been criticized by a lot of folks because it means that, that we all have the same stake in the game, right? That's, that's what the, the ally language, especially out of World War II was suggesting, you know, we are allies. It's, it's, well, we do all have a stake in the in the restoration or in the reparation of God's intended humanity, God's fullness of humanity and creation. However, um, we don't, as white folks, as white society, experience the harm, the disproportional harm that people of color and that leaders of color in this congregation continue to rest under or, or struggle under, really. There's no resting there. I know you are all alive people in resistance, right? But that means that there's something different that's called for. And some folks, I think it was uh, Kimberly Jones, um, certainly Bettina Love, uh, have called us to be co-conspirators. Uh, conspirator is the language of breathing with. Right? What does it mean to breathe with? To breathe with leadership of color, to breathe, breathe with communities of color, to breathe with partners of color organizations in this community. Um, that, that truly would be a new way of being, a new way of being congregation. And uh, it, it is a commitment, it's a vision that is worth staying connected to for me. Um, I guess I'll, I'll stop right there. <laughs> I, I, I'm, um, I'm really grateful uh, for this conversation. I'm, uh, I, every time I talk to both of you, um, I write down names 
Uh, I break down uh, books from our conversations and I end up moving towards them because uh, you both have a wealth of knowledge and experience that I think is uh, very informative. And I'm grateful uh, that you've given me this uh, time um, today to just uh, spend a few moments uh, in talking and, and getting to know you better in, in that way. So once again, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for your heart uh, and your willingness to serve God uh, in the spaces that you do. Um, so, Luis, the feeling is mutual. Trust me. Thank you so much. All right. Take care.